Yeah, good morning again and welcome. As you can see, we're in the middle of a series on the life of David. Uh, Before we get into that, how many of you guys real quickly just enjoyed worship this morning? Wasn't that great? Thank you, Nathan, the team. Uh, If you didn't know, that third song we did was actually co-written by Nathan Brown and Melody Taylor. So it's in-house song where we'll be doing uh, more of those, I trust. So thank you guys for, for doing that. Uh, we are coming to a very familiar story this morning. The scripture reading is pretty lengthy, so you may want to get comfortable here. And as we do that, let me just say one thing and this, that will help you as we get into this. You should forget everything you've ever heard about this passage this morning. And if you do that, you'll be doing all right. Here we go. Verse 1 here from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sokah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You were only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of a lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. (laughs) Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bare in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those, who gather, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran over and stood over him, took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. It's God's word this morning. Now, despite the fact that we really do live in one of the safest countries and time periods in all of human history, and despite the fact that the threat of disease, any disease you'll ever face in your life has never been lower, that the, the threat of pestilence and plague running rampant throughout our cities has never been lower, and, and despite the fact that the odds of you surviving childbirth and growing to adulthood have never been higher, we as a nation still grapple deeply with fear. It's just true. Every statistic, every survey bears this out. Our national suicide rate has never been higher. It's grown steadily every year since 2001. And the rate at which we prescribe medicine to deal with fear has never been higher. In the middle of a culture and a time like ours, where can you get courage to face and overcome your heart's greatest fear? Because that's what this passage is all about this morning. This passage is all about fear, the the debilitating and twisting effects of fear, what fear does to the human heart. And in the end, it's about how we can find the courage to help our heart face whatever fear lays our hearts bare. And yes, it is a hero story, but it's about a kind of a hero unlike any you've ever seen. It is a story about courage, but about a kind of a courage no other myth, no other fairy tale, no other story, no other faith system has ever seen. And so this morning, by looking at the three main characters in the passage and at the kind of armor each of these characters wears, we can see how we can face our fears and how we can find courage in anything we face today. Let's look at, first, Saul's missing armor, second, Goliath's outer armor, and finally, the champion's surprising armor. 
We'll begin in number one. It's Saul's missing armor. And here we go in the heart of the narrative. At the, at the heart of the story, we find taken perhaps the most bizarre snapshot of any battle in history. What was it? Well, verse 38 shows us this really interesting picture. It says, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic. Like, what is this? This is a king, right? A king in his tent. He's shedding his armor. He's putting it onto a shepherd boy, right? A battle-hardened soldier. He's flinging away his own protective gear and shoving it into the hands of a child. I mean, this is the, the equivalent of a professional boxer taking off his gloves when he's in the ring and on the ropes at the moment of perhaps being knocked out and then taking off his gloves and forcing them on a kid in the stands and saying, here, fight for me. What in the world is going on? Well, if you're familiar at all with the story, you know it's been set up like a scene from just a classic blockbuster movie, right? Two armies on two sides and two hills with a valley, a boxed-in valley between them. And into this valley of fear, of destruction, into the no-man's land came a man named Goliath. He was a giant of a human somewhere between eight and nine feet tall. And what Goliath is doing here, as you'll see, was common in the ancient world. He's going in there and challenging Israel to a specific kind of combat, of single-man, hand-to-hand combat, with the winner taking all. Why was he doing this? Well, Goliath was the champion, it says, the champion of the Philistines, which literally means the man between in Hebrew. He was the man between, a man between his people and defeat, a man between his people and destruction. And in this type here of a Palestinian cage match, the victory of the winner would pass to all the people and the defeat of the loser would pass to all his people. In other words, the champion would wear the glory of victory or bear the shame of defeat. Verse 11 says, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, why does it say in particular that Saul was dismayed and terrified? Well, Saul, as Israel's king, as his nation's king, would have been seen as its champion and the one whose responsibility it was to answer the call, to answer the bell when it was rung in this type of combat. And as much as Goliath's call rang out to all the Israelites, it was really aimed at Saul. And you can see this when he derogatorily calls all of Israel's soldiers, he calls them Saul. Saul's servants. See, it's really meant as an insult. Saul was seen as Israel's champion, and rightfully so. Saul was no weakling, no weakling at all. He was a powerful man. Uh, The Bible says he was head and shoulders taller than any man in his day. He was from a wealthy and powerful family. And as a matter of fact, up to this point, we've seen him lead multiple successful military campaigns. He was, quite literally, the best his nation had. Because if you could swing a sword, if you were tall in that day, you could lead your tribe or lead your nation. William Wallace, for example, he of Braveheart fame, whom we've no doubt heard of, was reported to be at least 12 to 18 inches taller than any other man, any other contemporary man in his day. And he used a sword that was literally as tall as the average man's height in his day. Five feet, four inches tall. Wallace led through size and strength. Saul had both. He had both. But here, he couldn't answer Goliath's 
challenge. Why not? Verse 32 shows us, it said, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And what David says right here, this verse right here, when he's brought to the king's tent and he says this, this shows us a stunning line between courage on one hand and fear on the other. Because when David says, let no one lose heart, he is literally saying, let no one's heart fall. Let no one's heart fall. What does that mean? Well, David's using military language here. To fall in battle meant you were through. If you kept your footing, you'd be likely to survive. But if you were swept off your feet, you'd be far more likely to be trampled over by a horse or stabbed or speared. See, to stay on your feet meant life. To fall meant death. And so David's saying here, can you see? Oh, king, don't let your heart go down. Don't let your heart fall. If your heart falls, your life and our lives will be soon to follow. Oh, but it's too late. Too late. Saul's heart has fallen. And this is why he's giving his armor away. But he's not just doing that. It's actually worse. Because the word here for his tunic or his gear or his armor is a technical term, Hebrew technical term, for the official uniform, the garb, the gear that the leader of a people would wear in the battle. In other words, Saul isn't just giving up his weapons. He's abdicating his position. He's giving his position away. He's looked inside. He's seen he does not have what it takes to deal with what life is giving him in the moment. And he's out of his mind with fear. See, his courage, his armor, his position, it's all going. This is Saul's personal fire sale of the soul. So what then is David showing us about courage? It's this. Courage is staring down your heart's greatest nightmare and not allowing your heart to fall. I'll say it again. Courage is staring down your heart's greatest nightmare and not allowing your heart to fall. You say, well, you know, Morgan, you can sort of hardly blame Saul here. I mean, after all, what were his odds? Not very good, right? Mine wouldn't have been good, very, very good either. And while we're talking about it, isn't all this courage in battle stuff a little outdated? outdated? Well, you got a point if you're thinking that because most of us will never fight in a real war. Most of us will never face down, charge the, you know, machine guns on a beach in Normandy. We won't do that. So do you really need this kind of courage? And the answer is, of course, yes. Yes, you do. Because if you hadn't noticed, a person can have tremendous courage in one area of their lives, in a critical area, but be a total and utter coward in another. A movie that came out not too long ago that shows us how people can have courage in battle but be cowards in life was the movie The Emperor starring Tommy Lee Jones. Here he plays General Douglas MacArthur and the movie takes place at the end of World War II with the United States trying to figure out how to reconstruct and deal with Japan. And the question the movie deals with is this. What are they going to do with the emperor of Japan? Is the emperor of Japan guilty of war crimes or not? Should the emperor be executed or not? And the movie unpacks the way in which the deeply ingrained shame and honor culture of Japan affected the war and how they lived their lives. See, in that day, the emperor was considered a god. 
was considered a god, a deity, and no one would dare speak a word against him upon pain of death. Every person would die for him because the emperor's honor was your honor. No one would dare to lift a finger against him until one day someone did. Some of the military leaders in the nation discovered that the emperor was going to order the nation to surrender, to spare lives, to lay down arms. And then the military turned on the emperor and tried to kill him. They invaded the palace, which was forbidden by law, custom, and religion, and nearly succeeded in their assassination attempt. Why did they do this? It was was because of this. They couldn't accept and deal with, handle the shame of losing face before the rest of the world. And the shame of losing face before the rest of the world was greater than the shame of laying a finger on the emperor. And in the end, most of the military leaders killed themselves rather than surrender. What's going on here? It's deep, something deeper than losing a war, isn't it? Yeah. They could face death but they couldn't handle life. And in the same way, we are all cowards when it comes to something. We may have courage in one area, but we can be total and utter cowards in another. Some of us are cowards when it comes to admitting we're wrong. We've just got to be right about everything in our relationships. And it's killing them and the people around us. Some of us are cowards, on the other hand, when it comes to confrontation, right? We would, oh, we would rather eat the poison of conflict, rather than do something courageously about the situation in our lives. We can't handle life, and so we take into us death. Some of us are cowards when it comes to commitment. Uh, We're afraid of committing to another person, right? To a group, maybe to a church, uh, because we're scared of what it would mean for our freedom. Now, you can say you're just keeping your options open. But in truth, you're scared of giving up control. Courage is taking on, staring down your heart's greatest nightmare and not allowing your heart to fall. Saul's heart has fallen. His armor, like his courage, has gone missing. And if we're honest, ours has as well. So how can we respond? How do we respond? There are two ways this passage shows us that we can try to deal with fear. Two ways this passage shows us we try to get courage. And the first way is through, number two, Goliath's outer armor. Hebrew scholar Dr. Robert Alter in his book, The Art of Biblical Narrative, says that one of the problems that you have when you read the Bible, why you sometimes don't get what it's trying to tell you, is because when we approach the Bible, we look at it through the lens, through the grid of the contemporary novel right? Novels, which didn't exist back then. Uh, Consider, of course, the modern romance novel uh, on which, uh, you know, it's it's crucial that they have lots and lots of details. Uh, Think about the modern romance novel. Uh, His extensive musculature and flowing hair were overshadowed only by the brilliant fire of his ice blue eyes, you know. Something to that effect. Yeah, you know, of course, none of you ever read one of those, so you have no idea what I'm talking about, right? Now, we're accustomed to detail in stories. We expect it. But in, in Hebrew narrative, 
personal details are incredibly rare, which means, Alter says, that when you get to this part of the story, all those details about Goliath ought to be shouting loud and clear to us. Look at verse 4. It says, he was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, a bronze javelin on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, iron point, 600 shekels. We get it by now, right? He's big and mean. And Alter says about these verses, quote, this Homeric, channeling the author Homer, enumeration of armor and weapons is quite untypical of the Hebrew Bible. The thematic effect is clear. Goliath is represented as a hulking man of material military impedimenta. There's your million dollar word for the day. Everything is given gargantuan size or weight, again with untypical specification. He concludes this way, Goliath moves into the action as a man of iron and bronze, a monument to what constitutes power. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying quite literally, Goliath is Iron Man. He's Iron Man. He's, you know, bristling with Tony Stark's latest gadgets. You know, weapons here, missiles there. He's high tech, right? David's low tech. Goliath's armed to the teeth, right? David's got basically his underwear and flip-flops in the desert, right? With a little, you know, noodle or something for a weapon. What's, what's the story showing us? What's it telling us? It might not be what you think. Again, remember the story's talking about fear and the two ways in which we try to deal with fear, two different ways we respond to fear when our heart's courage goes missing. And if that's the case, which it is, we have to ask, well, what's Goliath afraid of, right? What's he afraid of? What fear does Goliath have he's trying to deal with? At first you might be tempted to reply, well, nothing, you know, he's got no problems, but look again, look again. In his book, David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell says this. He says, the truth is that Goliath's behavior is puzzling. He is supposed to be a mighty warrior, but he's not acting like one. He comes down to the valley floor, accompanied by an attendant, a servant walking before him, carrying a shield. Why does Goliath, a man calling for sword-on-sword single combat, need to be assisted by a third party carrying an archer's shield? What's more, why does he say to David, come to me. Why can't Goliath go to David? And he goes on to talk about and show how the story shows how slowly Goliath moves, Goliath moves, which is a strange thing to show and say about a supposedly unstoppable hero. And Gladwell asks, why doesn't Goliath respond sooner to the sight of David coming down out of the hills with no armor, no weapons, no shield? Because when he first sees David, what's his reaction? It's to be insulted, right? He's in, he ought to be terrified or at least intrigued about what's going on. I mean, there's even that strange comment after he finally spots David with his shepherd's staff. He says, am I a dog that you should come to me with what? Sticks. Sticks is in plural. David's only holding one stick, one staff. What's going on? What many medical experts now believe is that, in fact, Goliath is covering for a serious medical condition. He looks and sounds like someone suffering for what is called acromegaly, a disease caused by a benign tumor of the pituitary gland. The tumor causes an overproduction 
of human growth hormone, which would explain Goliath's extraordinary size. Matter of fact, the tallest person in human history, Robert, Robert Wadlow, suffered from acromegaly. At his death, he was eight foot, 11 inches tall and still growing. And furthermore, one of the common side effects of this is vision problems. Pituitary glands grow to the, uh, the tumors, excuse me, grow to the point where they compress the nerves leading to the eyes, with the result that people with this condition often suffer from severely restricted sight and what's called diplopia, or double vision. Why was Goliath led onto the valley floor by an attendant? Because the attendant was his visual guide. Why does he move so slowly? It's because he can barely see a thing. He says, come to me that I may give your flesh to the birds and the animals. And in that request, we see his cry of fear leak out. He's saying, I need you to come to me because I can't see you otherwise. Goliath has to wear all the armor. It's the only thing keeping him alive. Goliath's response to fear, can you see, is a counterfeit. Inside, he's deeply afraid and compensates by making himself appear invulnerable, which in turn causes him to miscalculate the danger he's really in. What was he vulnerable to, right? Oh, not someone up close, but someone at a distance but no one had dared ever fight him like that before. He mocks what's actually life-threatening. He tries to banish his fear by armoring up on the outside, by making himself look invulnerable. Oh, but can you see it's false? It's a cheat, and it costs him his life in the end. His trust in his armor betrayed him. Therefore, we should ask, what false armor do you wear do we wear in an answer to banish our fear? For many years, uh, my wife, Carrie, and I would have the same fight. Now, if you've been married longer than a week, you know what I'm talking about at this point. She would want to buy, you know, something, anything, and I'd accuse her of being materialistic and not really being spiritual enough to grasp the severity of our financial situation. Now, this worked pretty well, although I thought so. It wasn't really working well, but it worked well, appeared to work well for the first few years of our marriage when we didn't have a lot of money. But then when our income began to grow and she would say, you know, I'd like to buy something, I'd say, you've got a problem with money. You're the one with a problem. But again, a few years later, it wasn't so easy to bully my way out of the conversation. And one night, in a really intense moment of marriage fellowship, a, a, fellowship, a fellowship where we were fellowshipping around the same thing we always fellowshipped around, she finally said, you're the one with the problem with money, but you just won't admit it. Why are you such a coward about it? Oh. <clears throat> she was right. He was right. I had grown up in my family just above the poverty line. I'd seen the pain and stress and challenges it brings into a family and the, the pain it caused my parents. And now, when squeezed in life, what came out? It was whatever had been put in, right? Same is true for you. I had been a Goliath in my marriage, in a sense, bullying my way out of the corner of the fear of poverty. 
See, there's all kinds of ways you can sort of bully Goliath your way through life, right? Through being really big on one hand, through yelling, through mocking, through screaming, or on the other hand, through being really small. Maybe that's your armor. Through isolation, being standoffish, difficult to talk to. Maybe, again, it's mockery. You, you, you dismiss the truth when it comes your way because you're really smarter and got it more together than the person who's spoken that word of truth to you. But listen, we only mock, scream, threaten, isolate, or retaliate when we're afraid, when we're fearful. Our mocking is false armor. Your isolation is false armor. Mistrust is false armor. But it will only betray you in the end. I mean, think about it. Why did Goliath die? Because he miscalculated the depth of the danger he was in. He dealt with his fear through defense mechanism after defense mechanism. Oh, how can we escape this? How can we be free? It's not by banishing all thoughts of fear, right? Not by banishing all thoughts of fear. Some fears are actually healthy. Like the fear of the hot stove, right? The fear of playing in traffic. No matter how many times my nine-year-old asks me to play with matches and gasoline, I'm just going to say, listen, buddy, something bad's going to happen, you know? I shouldn't tell them, hey, banish all thoughts of fear. Nothing's going to go wrong. No. (laughs) Something's going to go wrong. Furthermore, what if there's the very real possibility that if you do the right thing, it will kill you in the end? Hmm? What if you do the right thing and it takes you down? What can give your heart the courage to face that kind of situation? Let's look at number three. The answer is in the champion's surprising armor. Verse 37, but David said to Saul, the Lord who rescued me from the paw and the lion and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine. So David fastened on his sword over the tunic and he tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. It's fascinating, isn't it? Saul gives his armor away. Goliath puts more armor on, but David... He does something unique with both his fear and his armor. He refuses Saul's, right, because it doesn't fit, but then he doesn't go over and put on armor of his own. He simply marches out into the valley of fear, armed only with his courage and a simple weapon, and he does it, right? I mean, he confronts and defeats the enemy of his people, and his heroic rise to the throne, to a kingdom, begins. So what does it all mean? What does the story mean? If you're like me, you grew up hearing that the moral of the story is this. Be like David. Suck it up when stuff gets hard. When giants come your way, right? Just take them down. The bigger they are, the harder they'll fall. But if that's all that's happening here, if this story is all just about sucking it up in life, when the going gets tough, then fundamentally, it's no different than any other hero story or legend anywhere else. It's no different than, for example, from Beowulf. Maybe you guys have read Beowulf. It's the same plot here, right? There's an ogre, a monster threatening the village. The decrepit old king can't deal with it. And lo and behold, the young warrior unheard of from the provinces comes in, defeats the monster, and wins the princess's hand. See, is that all this is? Just another hero tale? Or maybe it's just trying to teach us a moral like you. I mean, I heard it was basically this. Suck it up in the valley of death. Have courage. And if you don't, God can't use you, you stinking coward. (laughs) That's the inference there, isn't it? 
Or does it mean maybe, hey, do what's right and everything will work out for you. Just stand up to the bully and he'll fall over. How did that work out for John the Baptist? How about Peter? How about James? How about Paul? How about Stephen? They were all killed for doing the right thing, for standing up to the bully. And look what it got them. Did they have less courage than David? Did God love them less? Was he less with them in their trial? Oh, even David's courage comes and goes, right? I mean, here he's awesome. But a few chapters later, he refuses to go out into battle when he should have been. And it costs his family and almost, it almost costs him his kingdom. So what's the story all about? I'll answer that by asking you another question. Who are you in this story? Hmm? Who are you? Where are you? Where am I? Are you David? Are you Saul? Are you Goliath? The truth is, if you'll be humble enough to admit it, you're none of these. You, I, we are the soldiers of Israel's army hiding in cowardice in our tents. And our cowardice, like Saul's, means this. We are unable to save ourselves from our heart's greatest nightmare. And unless another one steps in, a champion steps in and fights for us, our lives are forfeit. See, that's what this story is about. It's not about inspiration or be inspired. David didn't run up to Saul and you know give the boys in the barracks a big pep talk. Be inspired. Let's go out. Let's rush them together. You know, he can't take us all. He doesn't do that, right? God did not send Israel an example. He sent them a savior, but a different kind of savior altogether. David stepped in and fought, hear this, not just for them, but as them. He fights as them. He's the man between in the valley of the shadow of death. He didn't save them through inspiration. He saved them through imputation. What he did in that moment transferred to all of them. In a moment, every coward in their tent, the most cowardly one, even his brother who had been insulting him, received David's victory immediately, permanently, without doing a thing, without lifting a blade in battle. By being on David's side, they were immediately, automatically victorious. And that's when they were inspired. It says, verse 52, then, then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines. They were inspired. Then after they saw the courage and victory of their champion, the man between. Oh, can you see? This is a hero story, but it's from a galaxy far, far away. It's a hero story unlike any other. This means that God saves, not through your effort, not through being inspired, but through the saving action of his divinely chosen champion, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is David's greater son. This story, the story's about him, not us. Like David, Jesus became weak and vulnerable, not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. He gave his life for the weak, for the cowardly, the ones who insulted him up to the very moment of his trial. And he saved us, not just from physical death, but from eternal death, separation from God for forever. See, like David, Jesus didn't put armor on, did he, when he went to the cross? No, he took it all off. He hung naked as he died there on Calvary. He wins, though, not because he's strong, 
Because he's weak. Because he was despised. Because his enemy, Satan, overestimated his own power. The point of the story is that God's Savior is weak and wins through weakness. Do you need courage this morning? Want courage this morning? Look at that. Look at what your Savior has done for you. Listen, do you know what all your nightmares and fears are about? They are about the fact that you feel unloved. Or you feel that if you fail, you'll be unloved, unaccepted, cast away. Or you've been so accustomed to living with fear, you can't imagine your life without it. But think of Jesus. Oh, he faces all and more on an infinitely cosmic level before God Almighty. He went into our greatest nightmare, the battle we can never face. The weight of our own sin, the weight of our own injustices, our own cowardice in the face of that. He went into that nightmare of hell itself, and died. But God the Father raised him from the dead, and his Savior lives, giving proof once for all that his champion lives, his victor lives, and that when we unite with him, his victory, his power now come on us permanently, automatically, immediately. Are you today, are you afraid of the future? You're afraid of pain. You're afraid of what your friends will say if you really serve God. Oh, look at Jesus. What did he get for all of it, for doing what was right? It wasn't good, was it? No. But what happened in the end? God raised him up. He raised him up, which shows us this, that if we're in Christ, it shows us God will save you, his beloved child, though you can't possibly imagine how. You can have true courage by looking at your Savior, your man between, your champion, You meditate on that until your heart grows hot and your courage is larger than your fear. In J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Return of the King, there's actually a David and Goliath type scene near the end. There's a massive battlefield with two armies facing each other. There's a huge black demonic figure of fear that's wounded the king and now is coming to finish the job. He's coming to finish him off. And the only thing standing between the king And this demon of fear is a young warrior, actually. It's a maiden. Her name is Eowyn. She's the king's niece. And when this demon of fear sees her step in between him and the king, he says this. He says, come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. Now, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) But I know it's a place I don't want to go to. But what does Eowyn do? It says, then a sword rang, and she said, do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. Yeah, it's courage. But in that moment, there was another smaller creature, sort of more David kind of figure there. It was Mary the Hobbit, a halfling, who was there on the battlefield with Eowyn. But when that demonic presence, the, the demon of fear came, this is what it said about him. It said, Mary crawled on all fours like a dazed beast, and such a horror was on him that he was blind and sick. He fell to the ground and cowered in fear. King's man, king's man, his heart cried within him. You must stay by him. As a father, you shall be to me, you said. But his will made no answer, and his body shook. 
he dared not open his eyes or look up. Oh, but then in his fear, Mary heard the voice of his champion, the one between, and he saw her, the one he loved, about to die for him and for the king. And this is what the book tells us happened to him. It said, pity filled his heart and great wonder. And suddenly, suddenly the slow kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his fist and he went into battle. See, his courage came from seeing the one between, from seeing a champion. Choose a man, Goliath said. Send me a champion, Goliath said. And God has answered in Jesus Christ.